Well, it is great to see you. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Um, my wife and I were in Colombia with Compassion for a week, and I'll tell you a lot more about that in a couple of weeks' time. It was, uh, yeah, I, I, I summarize it simply as it was tragic and it was wonderful, right? Uh, a lot of poverty, but um, also some really beautiful things. Um, and then I spent this last week uh, spending some time with the family, with the kids on spring break. So obviously it was not restful at all. So <laughs> there you go. And uh, I really uh, am so glad to be back and uh, have the privilege of preaching this morning. Um, believe it or not, I missed you. So there you have it. Really do love you. And it's great to be back and have the privilege of preaching this morning, Palm Sunday. Look, our culture doesn't have anything special for this. They've got a Christmas thing going on. They've got an Easter thing going on. But Palm Sunday, is that, man, that's just the church. Only Palm, we nail Palm Sunday. We're going to have a few donkeys come in, some palm branches pretty quick. No, I don't know. But, you know, maybe eventually the, the culture will get that. They'll do like donkey rides on Palm Sunday. Like that's the thing. I don't know. But uh, either way, we value Palm Sunday a lot. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 21. That's where we'll be rooting ourselves in a real triumphal entry Palm Sunday text. So you can turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are always willing to put one in your hands. They've got some. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one home with you. So Bibles around, you can flag them down. And if you do own a Bible and you use it, please leave it here. You don't need 19 Bibles at home. Just leave it if it's not, if you have one already. But if you don't have one, it's yours. Now, um, let me read the text and we'll get right into it here on this Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. It'll also be on the screen. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, which was really a, a, a small suburb of Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives, like right there, um, to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them, sat on the cloaks, he was riding on the colt, the young donkey. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Look, if you have an outline or you have a bulletin on the back of it, uh, there's three points there. I'll tell them to you now, and then we'll work our way through them. First of all, we see in the first three verses, I think, that we see that everything belongs to Jesus. Everything belongs to Jesus. Secondly, the king has come and is coming again. The king has come and is coming again. Thirdly, from Hosanna to crucify him. And by the way, that all happened in less than a week. The crowd from Hosanna to crucify him. 
So why don't we pray together and then we'll work our way through. God, thank you. Thank you for, for sending your son Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for um, setting your face towards Jerusalem. Uh, meaning that you, um, with great intentionality, went into Jerusalem for the purpose of dying for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. So thank you for this entry into Jerusalem. Thank you for going there. Thank you for what you accomplished there. And Father, I ask by the power of the Holy Spirit, by your word, that as we work through this text, Lord, would you work on our hearts. We want to know you more. So God, I pray that we would see Jesus clear this morning and give him our worship, give him our lives. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I say that everything belongs to Jesus because um, there's, there's a scene that this starts with here. And the scene that it starts with is um, Jesus really right around Jerusalem in a neighboring village and he likely sends two of his disciples to Bethany, another place close by, to get a donkey for him to ride in on. We'll talk about why in a little bit. But... Um, what he instructs them to do is, that, is go, you'll find them there, take them, and as you take them, if anybody asks you, what are you doing with those? You just say, the Lord needs them. Now, this kind of has a little bit of a, a dual thing going on here because, because what that would mean if, if, if these two guys walk up in, in the, kind of the, the gates of Bethany and see this donkey and her young colt there and untie them and start walking away with them, someone might say, hey, what are you doing with those? And they're instructed by Jesus to say, the Lord needs them. Now, Lord means master or owner or ruler. And so the people would think, oh, okay, the master, the owner of this donkey has need of them. Okay, great. But Jesus is saying, it's really capital L, Lord, that they're to go there. And if somebody asks them, what, what are they doing? They say, the Lord needs them. Meaning the true owner, the full owner, the ruler over everything, Right? The one who is master over all has need of, him, of them. So let them go. So those are the instructions that they give, and I'm sure that exchange happened, and the Lord needs them. Okay, go ahead. For the Lord did need them. The ruler, the owner, truly of those things, had need of them. Now, there's this thing about having kids where what they do is they act like your stuff is their stuff. You ever notice that? These kids, yes. <laughs> These kids, they act like... Your stuff is their stuff. Like, it's just theirs. And in a way it is, right? They're part of the family. They're part of the household. And they can use it. But I occasionally like to let my kids know, hey, that's mine, man. And they'll be like, they'll, they'll treat something like it's theirs. And they're like, did you buy that? Did you buy that? You know, I, sometimes I just need them to know, just kind of use it, but use it carefully because it's really mine, right? I, so I need to let them know that sometimes. I have this video game console I never play it anymore. My sons love it so much so that we had to, okay, only on weekends. Like only on weekends. You guys are obsessed with this thing. All you think is video games. Like literally just like they could live this life. So it's like, no, only on weekends. And they're, they're counting down the moment to after school Friday, right? It's like, ah, like salivating. Like. And every once in a while I'll be like, in, I say to my son, you know that's mine, right? Like you know that's, 
you can use it. And when they want to keep playing, I'm like, it's mine. Like, stop. You can't use it anymore. It's mine. Just let them know. When we were in Calgary this summer, um, my son, one of my sons is really obsessed with hockey and has a bunch of hockey cards. And so when we went home to Calgary, I, I brought back all these boxes of, had this case full of my precious hockey cards, like these white boxes that even like said, like, do not touch. Like I, in my eight-year-old, like chicken scratch had written on the side as if my sisters would care. Um, but it was written there, and there's my eight-year-old writing on it, and I had all these cards, and I'm trying to teach my son what mint condition means. Like, I was like, you can bend your cards all you want. That's fine. But if you're going to use my cards, if you're going to look at my cards, keep them mints, right? Like, I, I, I'm just trying to teach it because ultimately those are mine, right? So I kind of, I let him use them. I, they're in his room. He, he looks at them often. But those are my cards, right? So the kids act like, your stuff is their stuff, and in a sense it is, and of course we want them to be cared for and make use of those things, but every once in a while you feel like you have to re- remind. You know it's ultimately mine, right? So that's what Jesus is doing here. Is there an owner to this donkey and its young colt? Of course. But Jesus is saying, but I'm the ultimate owner. I'm, I'm the ultimate ruler. Everything, everything is mine. And what the disciple needs to, to, to know, what the, the disciple needs to understand is that Every disciple's possessions belong to the king. All of our possessions belong to Jesus. It's all ultimately his. Does he entrust us with them? Absolutely. Does he allow us to have blessings? Absolutely. But every disciple is to know who the rightful, true owner of all things is. Jesus illustrates this in a parable called the parable of the talents. We see it in Matthew 25. We see it in Luke 19. And in this parable... um, Jesus tells of this master who gives five talents. It's a monetary amount, a talent, but it's a great play on words. It's it's, it's much more than money in the story. It has to do with every faculty, all that they've been entrusted with, everything about them. So Jesus entrusts one, or the master entrusts one servant with five talents, another with two talents, another with one talent. says, I'm going to go away. I'm entrusting these with you. Use them wisely. Use them faithfully. Use them for good my good purposes and off he goes and he comes back a time later and he goes to the 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 servant who he had entrusted five talents with and and says what did you do with the five talents i gave you and he said well i turned them into 10 i made five more he says well done good and faithful servant i entrusted you with a little i'm going to trust you with more so this is the one with two what did you do with the two talents i gave you well i actually made two more it's like well done good and faithful servant I'm going to entrust you with more. You've been entrusted with a little. I'm going to entrust you with even more. Goes to the one who is entrusted with one talent. What would you do with it? Well, you know, I buried it. I buried it because, you know, I didn't want anything to happen to it. I, didn't, I, I know what kind of ruler you and master you are, and I didn't want anything to go wrong, so I buried it. But we see in the master's response what was the real motivation of the servant because he calls him a wicked and slothful servant. I entrusted you with a talent, and you were lazy. You didn't want to do anything. You buried it and just left it alone. The others worked hard. They invested. They did things with it. They used it for your purposes so that when the master came back, the five was ten, and he could give it back to his master. And so Jesus is, is, is actually calling this a wicked, slothful servant who does nothing with what has been entrusted to them. And of course, the story is about Jesus and trusting us with gifts and trusting us with things and trusting us with possessions, all of it. And we need to learn from such a parable of, of, of what the calling is on us. 
If we're followers of Jesus, everything that's ours is ultimately his. And at any time, Jesus could come along and nudge us and say, the Lord has need of it. This thing that you love, that you have, maybe you're clinging too tightly to, the Lord needs it. Now, does he need it? Does he need us? No. But the Lord requires, the Lord calls, the Lord draws us kind of with with these gifts, with these things that we have to use them. We're called to be faithful with everything that God has entrusted to us because it's ultimately his. See, look, for some of us, he's given us a voice. He's given us a way with words to to share the gospel winsomely, to, to, to talk to people about Jesus, and we're able, and we have the voice to do it, and people would probably even listen. And yet, you know what? We find ourselves biting our tongues. Find ourselves biting our tongues because, ah, they might think I'm weird. Find ourselves biting our tongues when we could tell somebody about Jesus, some good news, the gospel. We bite our tongue. Right? We could say more. We could tell them, but ah, what if they think poorly of me? What if it costs me? What if it shames me? What if something happens? And so we don't say a word. What if, uh, look, some of us have been, look, all of us have been given wealth. All of us. I was just in Colombia. I'll tell you more about it later. But um, you come back and you realize, okay, my floor is not dirt. My roof doesn't link. It doesn't leak. We have a, t- we have a toilet. We have three. You know, like, uh, like, there's all, like, we have food. Like, we go to Costco. We're set up for three weeks, right? They're, 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 like, they don't know if they're eating today, right? And, and you're seeing this stuff, and you come back, and you go, yeah, I can't really point my finger at the really rich guy because I'm rich. Like, I'm the really rich guy. Like, that's just my, that's my position in the world. And so God has entrusted us with much. So I'll reiterate what I shared again uh, back at, in our, when we did our generous series last spring, is look, the, the resources we've been entrusted with are not so that we can get fat while other people starve. That's not why God gave us a lot. It's just not. He gave us much so we can be conduits of his grace. Look, in these poor villages where people are li- living hand to mouth, They can't impact the world from that space unless something extraordinary happens. You and I, us in this room, the resources we have, could go anywhere on the planet with the gospel. We have the resources to do it. Right? We have been given that. That's a gift. That's a talent. And so there's a bit of fear and trembling when when we press these kinds of things and we say, oh, may we not be called the wicked and slothful servants, right? Right? We have been entrusted with much. Will we loosen our grip? Will we further God's kingdom? Will we build his church? Will we bless the nations? Will we be conduits of his grace? Look, some of us have been given a keen intellect, right? Some of you are really, really smart, and you, you hear some, some real great, really difficult doubts people have. Like, these are legit. Like, these are, these are really challenging doubts about faith that they're wrestling with. And, and you actually have a really keen intellect and you're, you're able to, to, to wrestle those through with them and, and, and really give them some good time and, 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 and work on that. But, but you just err on the side of just more and more doubt. Just rolling into more, rather than using your intellect to glorify God, to speak truth, you just, like, you just use it to, yeah, how could how could a loving God be how could a just how could a loving God be just or or judge or and just rather than pursue Christ, just pursue question after question with the intellect as opposed to seeking and using that for rich answers found in God's word. Look, we have been given 
talents. We have been given gifts. And at any moment, the Lord could nudge us and say, I have need of it. And we are to hold our hands open as his disciples and say, there's nothing that you could require that I won't give. Do you recognize the lordship of Jesus over everything, over you, over everything he's entrusted to you? It's never too much for him to require it because everything belongs to Jesus. Secondly, the king has come and is coming again. Let me read verse 4 and on. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. We'll get there in a bit saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Jesus was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus rode on a donkey for a couple of reasons. He, he tells his disciples to go and get him a donkey. Well, first, it symbolizes humility and peace. Jesus, who the crowd hails as their king and savior, was unarmed, was plainly dressed, and riding on a, uh, on a donkey. It sharply contrasts any image of a general king with a sword and riding on a war horse. Jesus did this with intentionality because the symbolism is that of humility, gentleness, and peace. It wasn't absolutely uncommon that a king would actually ride on a donkey. It just had, it had rich meaning. And the meaning was it was a time of peace. When a king or a general would ride on a horse, it also had rich meaning. It was a time of conquest. It was a time of war. It was the time of showing strength and might. But Jesus chooses to ride in on a donkey because he's a sacrificial king. It harkens back to just a few verses earlier in Matthew 20, verse 28, where it says, Jesus, came not, Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And here he enters in on a donkey. It's such a picture of that. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. And he enters Jerusalem where he would die on a donkey. It's not a symbol of great strength. It's not a symbol of great power. It's a symbol of humility and peace. Earlier in Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus riding humbly on a donkey just speaks of such approachability. Jesus was approachable. He was sacrificial. He was compassionate. He was gracious. So the fact that he rode on a donkey symbolizes his humility and peace. Secondly, it fulfilled prophecy. Jesus did this for a purpose. Because Zechariah 9.9, 9, I'm going to read on to verse 10 as well for context. It says in, in, in our context here, Matthew 21.4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And here's what the prophet Zechariah said. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's come, yes, as the king of Israel, 
but he's also come to be the king from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, to be the king of all nations. And he's fulfilling this prophecy by riding into Jerusalem and being hailed as the king. See, he is the Lion of Judah, but he's coming as the Lamb of God. Behold, your king is coming to you. There's another line in Matthew that, that really strikes me. It talks about this donkey being a, bur- a beast of burden. Like, look, like a donkey, they're kind of comical, right? Like donkeys are goofy-looking little animals. It, it's no show pony, right? A donkey ain't no show pony. Like they're just, they're gnarly little guys. They're funny, they're, they're cute, whatever, right? We know them from Shrek and love them. They're adorable, right? All of that, yes, but they're a beast of burden. What they're there for is just to put a pile of heavy stuff on their backs and send them across the field and then do another load and then do another load. Like the donkey is around it's a, as a beast of burden. Put a bunch of weight on its back and send it, right, to do its work. Beast of burden could not be a better term in this context because Jesus' disciples go and get this young colt, this young male donkey, bring it back with its mother, probably because it's going to go through a crowd and the mother will be there to calm him. He's probably never even, no one's probably ever ridden on him before. And so they, they put their uh, clothes on him, they, they their, um, uh, put, put things on him, and then Jesus sits on the colt and, and he walks, makes the trek into Jerusalem. People are putting their cloaks down in front of this donkey, right? They're waving palm branches, putting palm branches down on the road. This donkey's walking. And you've got to believe that its knees were buckling. It's, it's young. It's probably ne- it's never been ridden. Mum's there beside him, keeping him calm as the crowd cheer. But this donkey was a beast of burden because on his back was riding Jesus and on his back were all of the sins of all of the world that he was carrying on his back as he went to Jerusalem to be crucified and this young donkey legs just buckling walking down this crowded street beast of burden has never been so appropriate for it carried Jesus who was carrying our sins the heaviest burden ever. Jesus was carrying it into Jerusalem with him. Look, Jesus rode on a donkey this time because it reveals humility, it reveals peace, it reveals that he's approachable and we are to come to Jesus this way. But Jesus will come again, and this is the second point. The king has come and he is coming again. And I want to read to you about his second coming. It's much different. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. It's no donkey this time. This time it's a war horse. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is a very different entrance. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, for he is so high above us, so far beyond us. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. It's starting to get weird revelation language here now, right? Huh? What? He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, a wa- on white horses as well. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike 
down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, this is what 20-somethings everywhere have This is the verse they've used to, 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 to uh, condone tattoos. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Sorry, moms, you didn't like that one. What this is saying is that Jesus entered into Jerusalem one way, but he's going to descend as heavens open when he comes again a completely different way. He rode in humble on a donkey offering peace. Right? That you and I could approach him. That you and I could receive him as our king. That you and I could know this Jesus, receive this Jesus, come to faith in this Jesus. But there is a time coming when the heavens will open and he will come again and it's very different. He will be on a white war horse. His robe will be dipped in blood. There will be what looks like a sword coming from his mouth. Now this is all apocalyptic language. It's, it's just picturesque imagery. It all has rich meaning. Is it weird? Yeah, to us it's weird. But there's rich, rich meaning to it. See, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. It's the power of the gospel of truth. For when he comes again... He will declare the truth of the gospel and the sword will divide. The sword will cut. We will discover those who put their faith in Jesus and those who did not. The enemies of Jesus will be defeated. Jesus is faithful and true. The word of God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He comes to save his people and judge their enemies. He comes to rule the nations and judge justly. He is righteous, right? He's sinless and he's worthy and he judges righteously. And you and I need to really get that because what I'm saying right now is starting to make a few of us a little uneasy. But he judges righteously, which means he knows best. He is fair. He is true. He is faithful. We think we know how he should act. He knows better. He is God and we are not. And he will judge righteously when he comes again. Now it's interesting, there's a little bit of um, differing views on this, that Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. Some believe that that's the blood of his enemies, that he will come and he will right, divide, and that he will conquer with the sword. But the picture also seems to start with Jesus descending from heaven on a white war horse with this sword. He's making his entrance, and his robe already appears to be dipped in blood. So whose blood? What blood? See, it's the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. That, that, that the blood that saves those who put their faith in him and judges those whose sins are not covered. So as Jesus comes on a young colt, humble, peace, offering life, allowing us to receive him as king, he comes that way. When he comes again, there will be people who have trusted in the merits of Christ or trusted in their own merits. And his blood shed on the cross and who it covers will be understood. Now, there's a lot that we could say here. There's lots of discussion we could have here. Um, but listen, I can only say a couple things at this point about this. Here's what I want to say. 
Throughout history, texts like this, Revelation 19, actually the entire book of Revelation, go anywhere that is persecuted in the world right now uh, as Christians, or anywhere in history where there have been persecuted Christians. You know what their favorite book of the Bible tends to be? Revelation. You know why that is? Because justice is coming. Justice will come. So you may be persecuted now, but it's momentary. I promise you, says Revelation. You may be in hardship now, but Jesus is coming again. Like Revelation just says that over and over and over again. There are so many parts of the world right now who are being martyred, who are being persecuted. And you know what they're clinging to? The truth that the heavens will part and Jesus will descend on a white war horse and he will make all wrongs right. He will judge justly. He will judge righteously. And it's really only the first time in history that we sit like we sit, where we sit in coffee shops, where we sit around in our living rooms and say, is God really loving if he judges? Like we're the first people ever who have even thought that way, really. How could a loving God judge? Listen, I wish we could all get in a plane right now. Wish we, well, I don't really wish this. but Say we all get on a plane right now. And we go to some villages in Africa where um, what the rebels do there uh, in order to, in, in some of these areas, in certain particular countries, is they actually use rape as a war tool to absolutely demoralize communities. So they'll rape the women and they will rape the children. They will turn the children into child soldiers. And go to, let's get on the plane, let's go to the Middle East, let's go where there, where there are beheadings, where there are persecutions, where people are being slaughtered. Let's go where churches are being burned. Let's go to these places, let's go other places that have nothing even to do with Christianity. Let's just go to places where atrocities are happening. We don't have to go far, they happen in our town. Where horrible things happen to people. And for some of you, those kinds of atrocities have touched your lives. And when those kinds of atrocities touch your lives or you get a glimpse of it, you say, praise God for Revelation 19. Praise God for a, for a righteous judge who, because he is sinless, because he is faithful, because he is God, because he is over all things, praise God that he's coming again and will right the wrongs. That those things won't go unaccounted for, but they will be judged. And for everyone who sees the error of their ways, for everybody who recognizes their sins, they come to Jesus and are saved, wretched as they are, wretched as I am, sinner that I am. I can put my hope in Jesus and say, so you're covered, covered by the blood of the Lamb. See, we live in this unique time when we have it so good. Look, it doesn't mean hardship doesn't come, suffering doesn't come. It does but our, our lives are generally so good, we bounce around concepts about God being unloving for judging evil. Really? In some ways, I wish we could get on that plane. See, we need to look closely at how Jesus has come and respond. Because entry number one has happened, entry number two has not. This is probably about as brim, brimstone as I'm going to get, Okay? Hang with me for a little bit. Jesus has come one way. He's coming another way. He's come on a young colt, bearing the burden of your sin on his back. 
into Jerusalem willfully. He set his face to Jerusalem to die for your sin. That's why he came. He willfully surrendered his life, became more of a servant than we could imagine by laying his life down for us, bearing our sin on a cross. And he comes and offers that we could know him. He will come again as well to judge the living and the dead, to right wrongs, to deal with sin, and to make all things new. So my plea, Central, my plea this morning is encounter Jesus as the one who approaches you on the donkey, not on the war horse. Turn to Jesus. Thirdly, from Hosanna to crucify him and from Hosanna to crucify him in just a few days. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There's a few things going on here I just want to explain. Them laying their cloaks down on the road is really a picture, a sign of submission, right? You're wearing your nice cloak, wearing your nice jacket, wearing your nice sweater. You take it off in front of a dirty donkey, like <laughs> stomping down the street, like it's going to get kind of ripped up or it's going to get dirty or whatever, It's just such a sign of submission to put that down in front of a a farm animal walking down the road. It's this sign of submission, of honor, of that this Jesus is far more important than your jacket. They spread palm branches on the road. This was also common practice. This was common practice of triumphant victory parades of kings and generals. Palm branches would be laid out. So common practice for this sort of a not really this setting, but the setting of triumphant victory parades. But it's also starting to imply in these verses the crowd's wrong messianic concept of Jesus. They see him as the Messiah, yes, the saving one. They see him as, 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 as a king, yes, and even in the line of David. They're getting that all right, but it, it, it's, 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 sounding, it's falling a bit short, even that, that he's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Just, it, it's true, yes, but it's just so... It's just, they're rounding down, right? It's just, it's, it's just not full enough. It, and so they're doing these things, but it, it's also kind of implying this wrong concept of Jesus and some of the actions that they're doing. In verse 9, we see them declare some things that really are straight out of Psalm 118. They cry, Hosanna, which is the Greek translation of, uh, the, of save us, we pray. Hosanna means save us, we pray. So they're, they're yelling, Hosanna. It really turned into... Um, a declaration of adoration and joy by that time. So they were, they, were, they were joyful. They were sharing this. Hosanna. But there's also an urgency to it and an asking of save us. We pray as they say Hosanna. They call him the son of David, meaning that he was the Davidic king that was awaited. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, straight out to Psalm 118, that he was this awaited coming one. All of these or messianic kingly addresses. It also says that the whole city was stirred up. It's one of those weak words when you translate it into English, stirred up. The crowd was stirred up. I don't know what that, what that looks, what that maybe sounds like to you, but 
but really the word has rooted in it um, really what happens in earthquakes. Like an earthquake is happening, and it's really like it, it's really kind of stirred up, it's thrown into commotion, right? The crowd is thrown into commotion. It, it, it's kind of used also about apocalyptic upheavals in Revelation. So there's this wild with excitement, um, thrown into commotion. Like the crowd is like really stirred up. They're fired up. Um, it's, it's lively and wild. They're wildly excited, this crowd, and cheering Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah King. But again, I'll ask the question, how is it that on Palm Sunday the crowd is cheering Hosanna on the Sunday, and by Friday they were chanting, crucify him. Hosanna to crucify him. How did they get there in a week? It would seem to appear from this text and what unfolds in the rest of the week that the people had a shallow confession of Jesus as their King and Messiah. Their confession of Jesus as these things, yes, but their confession of them was shallow and weak. They thought that the road to victory with Jesus would be easy. They had seen his miracles. They had seen him feed the the thousands. They had seen him perform the miraculous. Like if we just hang with Jesus, if he's our king, we're just going to follow him into victory, right? And they had this picture of what that would look like. They pictured what it would look like. And yet when things didn't unfold that way, they turned on him. And they turned on him fast. See, when the people perceived that Jesus would accomplish what they wanted, and meet their felt needs, what they perceived they could get from him, they worshipped and praised. But when it looked different, when it wasn't what they wanted or wasn't what they expected, they rejected him. This still happens, wouldn't you say? Especially since we're the instant generation, like we live in the now. We live in the now. I live in the now. Right? Sometimes I'm trying to like work on like five-year plans, five-year strategy. Like five years, what? That's just so far. Right, we li- now, and we, and we kind of look at how am I feeling right now? What do I need right now? Because I can buy it on my tablet right here beside me. Like I can just get it. Right? We live this way. We're living so in the present, so in the moment, that sometimes it's really hard for us to take a long view. And because we live that way, we kind of get fixated on how things are going right now. And that kind of determines how we feel about our faith. See, when we perceive Jesus to accomplish specific particular things for us, that he's going to come a particular way and do particular things for us, and then it doesn't work that way or things start to go poorly, we really start to question. See, when things are going well, we, we, we go around and we say, I'm so blessed. Man, I'm so blessed, right? When things are going well, when life is good, when God gives us rich gifts, we say, oh, I'm so blessed. And then when they're going poorly, Something horrible happens. When suffering comes, if our view of God is shallow, if our view of Jesus is shallow, what often happens is we say, where's God? Why has God forgotten me? Why is God absent? Why is God, has he forgotten me? God's not faithful. God's not loving. God's not just, we say, as the moments of hardship come. And yet we've got to ask the question. We've got to stand back. We've got to learn from this crowd. Could it be that the God of the universe has even greater plans? See, we make our plans and we think Jesus is going to bless them. 
We make our plans and we think that, man, God's going to do this thing for me if he loves me. When it goes differently, we've got to acknowledge God knows best. It really brings us to the, to the point where we have to ask the question, is Jesus enough? We have to just answer that question. Is Jesus enough? If all goes, if we turn into Job all of a sudden and literally everything like bam, 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 everything's going wrong. If, if our view of Jesus is built upon him doing things in our image, the way we perceive that they should go, and then they go poorly or everything around us fails, we lose it all. Do we still know Jesus? Is Jesus still enough? Right? As the song goes, take the world, but give me Jesus. Right? It's just based on these, these scriptures that are so true. The Apostle Paul wants us to know that, look, they can take everything, but I have everything if I still have Jesus. You can take the world, but give me Jesus. Right? Like, is Jesus enough as he comes, as he is? Right? Because if we start to put our vision of him and paint that picture, and it's not true, it's not faithful, it's not biblical, we're going to be really let down when hard times come. John Chrysostom, church father, uh, made this response when cheering broke out while he was preaching. He said, you praise what I have said and receive my expectation with tumults of applause. What he's saying is, I've just said something that so sinks into your heart and you're celebrating it, you're cheering now. Sometimes this is us in a worship song, right? There's a song that's beautiful. We go, yes, Lord, I love you, right? In that moment, the song sounds beautiful. It's a minor key. It's a little bit mysterious, right? The synth pad is playing. It sounds really Holy Spirit, spiritual, right? All of those things are working together in that beautiful moment. Our hands raise and we go, God is so good, Right? And he's saying, you praise what I've said and receive my exhortation with tumults of applause, but show your approbation by obedience. That is the only praise I seek. Yeah, lift your hands now. Cheer now. Praise now. Absolutely. God's worthy of all of that. It should happen. But what also should happen is you be obedient when the hard thing comes later today, later this week, later next year. He's still worthy of your praise and your applause. He's still of supreme worth. It, it comes down to trust, whether we know best or he knows best. See, he's not who the crowd thought he was, and yet he was even greater than that. Did they misunderstand? Yeah. Do we misunderstand Jesus sometimes? Absolutely, yeah. But what we need to remember, and what the truth of the scriptures say is, you know what? When we misunderstand, it turns out he's even greater than we'd imagined. Look at this. See, they wanted a king, they wanted freedom, they wanted salvation. And Jesus came to bring all those things, but differently and more fully than they had envisioned. See, Jesus came to be king, but not king of one nation, king over all nations. Jesus came to bring freedom, but not simply from Roman oppression, but rather from the tyranny of sin and death. It's greater, no? Jesus came to give salvation, but not just a momentary rescue mission to change some physical circumstances, but the great rescue mission in all of human history, that great rescue mission in all of the scriptures of salvation, that Jesus came to save sinners from their sin and to restore the world polluted by sin. So look, as I close, that Passion Week, that confused and misguided crowd shouted two things. Hosanna! and crucify him. And Jesus, out of sheer grace, answered both of those cries. Do you see that? The crowd in that Passion Week cheered, cried, yelled, screamed, two things. Hosanna! Save us, we pray. 
and crucify him. And Jesus, out of sheer grace, answered the crowd on both occasions. For when they cried, crucify him, Jesus said, okay. And he was nailed to a cross. They wanted him dead, and he died. But in doing that, he also answered their cry of Hosanna. Save us, we pray, for as he was crucified, he bore your sin and mine on a cross, paying the penalty for our sin, so that we could be saved. That is good news. From Hosanna to crucify him, Jesus was crucified on a cross so that we could be saved. Amen. Amen. I'm going to call our prayer team to just get into some different um, areas of the room. Uh, oftentimes they'll come up to the front here and towards the back and up in the balcony, just making themselves available to pray with you. In response to God's word, yeah. In response to what's going on in your life right now, you just want prayer, feel free. We, we love to pray with you. The band's going to come up as well. Let's just spend a little bit of time in prayer. Al, would it be all right if, do you want to come join me? You, you comfortable with that? Let's pray for our brother Al this morning as well. Man, I love you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. We need you for a thousand different reasons here in this room this morning. So God, um, yeah, I'm so thankful for the Haldane family, Lord. I'm so thankful for Susan. We all are. Everyone who knows Susan is thankful for Susan. Her legacy is rich. A woman who loved Jesus. A woman who called out amen time after time in this sanctuary. A woman after your heart, Lord God. Faithful. Faithful to you, faithful to her family. And God, I praise you for my brother Al, a man of God. God, I thank you for the redemption in his life. I thank you for the man of God that he has become. And God, we hold him up here as our brother this morning because we love him. And um, and God, I pray that, that your comfort and your peace would just surround him. Lord, by your spirit, would you minister to him and the Haldane family as they suffer the loss of mom and wife, the woman of God. God, I pray that you would also help us to love Al well, love the Haldanes. God, we want to love him. We want to support him. And God, we praise you. <laughs> One of my favorite worshipers in this church is, uh, has the envy of praising you in heaven right now as we wait on this side of heaven. God, we praise you that she's standing, that she's dancing, that she's singing. We know, Lord, that she is in utter bliss with her Savior for all eternity. God, I pray that you would um, minister to Al and his family on this side of heaven, in the hurt, in the pain, in the loss. And thank you for them. Lord, for all of us on Palm Sunday, 
may we cry Hosanna, yes. We call out to you to save us. Call out for you to be our rescue. Put our trust in you, Jesus, as the Savior of our lives. Lord, would you help us to get to that place where we can say with everything in us, you can take everything away but give me Jesus and it's enough. Lord, would you give us that? We need that by your Holy Spirit's power. We need that with the truth of your word. We cannot manufacture that on our own. So we ask you, Lord Jesus, may we cry Hosanna and mean it from the bottom of our hearts. Deepen our faith, I pray, Lord Jesus. Root us in you. We praise you for Palm Sunday. We praise you for Good Friday. And we praise you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you, Jesus. In his precious name, amen.